From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Fertility treatments like IVF can cost tens of thousands of dollars. We maxed out credit cards. We budgeted the best we could. We saved up enough money for our first round, which was unsuccessful. Often, people try more than once. A new state law may help couples overcome that hardship, but there are still obstacles. Then, nuclear power, once seen as a great hope, then a great fear. But is it a way to fight climate change? I think it's the bridge to get us to a carbon-free future. A new podcast examines nuclear energy. And we remember a columnist who covered Denver TV from its earliest days. From the archives, Dusty Saunders recalls when the Broncos upstaged Mel Torme. Yesterday we had some The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. It can cost tens of thousands of dollars for couples to get fertility treatments like IVF, and that means it can be out of reach. A new Colorado law will require health plans to cover fertility diagnosis and treatment, but not everyone will be eligible. Christina Yanetsos is an emergency medicine physician in Aurora. She underwent fertility treatments and paid for them out of pocket. More recently, she advocated for the new law. Dr. Yanetsos, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. When did you realize you'd have to go through fertility treatments? So it was probably in my early 20s that I realized that I had a problem. Um, I was an athlete for a really long time, and something that I thought was almost celebrated, um, the absence of a menstrual cycle as a result of being a high-level athlete and training and cutting weight, there was actually a problem. So probably in my 20s, I recognized there was a problem, but didn't know the extent of the issue until I went to medical school and I sat in a lecture and they said, if you are a young female and you are not having a menstrual cycle, there is a problem. And at that point, it kind of spiraled from there. And we said you underwent fertility treatments. How much did it cost? So each round of fertility treatments probably was twenty-five to $30,000. We went to our first uh, reproductive endocrinology appointment. We sat down with the physician and they said to us, okay, great. Well, you're going to need to go through IVF. Um, you know, I'm going to have you step over into the business office and they'll talk to you about, you know, what those details are. And it was there we were handed um, package options which detailed the cost of $25,000 plus medications that can cost up to $10,000. And it was from there that I came home absolutely defeated. I worked in an emergency department. And so, you know, we have so many patients who come in who do not have resources. And there is always a plan of how we are going to make sure these patients get help. And I felt absolutely helpless. And I said, how many people are going through this who have that same feeling, who come into an appointment and are just overwhelmed with the cost and recognize there's a huge barrier to family building for patients who have a diagnosis of infertility. 
And you were able to pay for it. How many treatments did you go through until you were pregnant? I will say that paying for it was a very difficult feat. Um, So I had just finished medical school and I had just finished residency and my husband had also just finished his graduate studies. And so we were facing mountains of student loan debt. So we, I mean, we maxed out credit cards, we budgeted the best we could. And so we saved up enough money for our first round, which was unsuccessful. It took a couple of years to save up for the next round, which was also unsuccessful. And it was also complicated by some delays with COVID. And we actually saved for a third round. So we went through three rounds, all of those out of pocket, which was really, really financially difficult and emotionally difficult. What was the grand total that you spent? Um, I would say it was probably close to $100,000. And did the treatments work? They finally did. Uh, So in December of 2021, I had my first children. I had twins. And so we are very fortunate. How common is it for someone to deal with infertility as you did? So the general population, um, they say, is about one in eight Americans will face infertility. And there's a wide range of diagnoses that go under that. So for in my case, hypothalamic amenorrhea, polycystic ovarian disease, endometriosis, young patients who have had cancer and who needed to go through chemotherapy. There are patients who have sustained injuries who may need um, infertility treatments. Um, And they say that, you know, our African-American population is actually double the number of the general population. And female physicians are also almost double the number of the general population. So they are one in four. And it's really... Yeah. So it's really unclear why that is. Um, Some say it's we delay raising and and trying to have children till later years once we're done with our medical education. But even controlling for those factors of age, um, we have a higher prevalence and it's really unclear. They don't know if it's like stress related or circadian rhythm because we work all hours of the day and sometimes have overnight shifts. So it's really unclear. What about the Black community? What do you see as the reason for that? So same as general population, there's a number of different reasons. Some suspect it could be um, they're more likely to have kind of fibroid uterus. And so implantation is really difficult and they can have a general, you know, the our endometriosis, polycystic, all of those things as well. But it's it's really interesting and it's really terrible that it's, you know, more likely in our African-American community, but then they're also less likely to seek out care. As you mentioned, I imagine there are people who can't pay the thousands of dollars that you did to undergo treatment. Until now, what have been their options? Until now, I mean, we've heard stories of families selling homes, moving into into their houses with their families, setting up GoFundMes, applying for grants. There are lots of patients, including myself, who have sought out treatment internationally because it's not the cost that it is in the United States. So there are families who are flying to Europe or Mexico for treatment. And, you know, the other option is a lot of families, I mean, there are a lot of companies who offer these benefits, for example, Starbucks. So some families just go ahead and get jobs at at companies who provide these benefits to families and they, they end up being successful in building their family through that route. So there are companies that voluntarily do this. Yes, definitely. Um, And we have seen that 
a number of companies, mostly tech companies actually, but more and more companies are realizing the benefit to their employees and adding these benefits. And I will say that um, I am really excited that the University of Colorado, after you know hearing from their employees that they wanted these benefits, actually added those benefits to start in July of this year. Now, the new law doesn't apply to everyone, only people covered under large group plans, 100 or more employees. That seems to rule out a lot of people who work for smaller companies. Definitely. So as the bill was written in 2019, 2020, so it originally passed April of 2020, it was written for the small individual and large group markets. However, there was... um, Essentially, it was deemed that, you know, only large group markets could go into effect based off of this bill. And it also does not apply to federal regulated insurance companies. So, you know, Medicare, TRICARE, uh, Medicaid, and, you know, self-insured entities. I also understand the law doesn't apply to every person, even if they work for a large company who might want to undergo a procedure like IVF. Who would be able to take advantage of it? So the people who, by the law, would be able to take advantage of infertility treatments would be individuals who have a diagnosis of infertility. Um, And that definition varies, but generally it's someone who has tried to build a family and after a year has not been successful. And um, at the age of 30 or over the age of 35, six months or longer. And it wouldn't allow a woman to freeze her eggs uh, if she were getting older, for example, but it would apply to women who have struggled with certain medical conditions. Yes. So um, the law, as it's written, also applies to preservation services. And those services are for medically indicated cases. So in cases where someone's fertility may be threatened by a medical intervention, so let's say chemotherapy. Um, So it allows patients who still want to have families to, you know, uh, do egg retrievals or, you know, sperm retrievals to preserve their ability to have children in the future. This may not be a comfortable question, but should everyone have the right to these treatments? I mean, is this a medically necessary treatment that folks should be able to undergo? I believe that it is everyone's right to have a family. And if there are barriers to that care, then we should ensure that they have those abilities. So infertility is a medical diagnosis that has treatment options that are widely available and families should have access to that. And, you know, the insurances should make sure that we are paying for treatment options for those families. Did you have pushback from insurers, maybe employers who have to take this on? How have they reacted to the new law? So I think the concern is that it would add additional costs. And there have been other states, I believe we're the 19th state to add this benefit, but there are other states who have added this benefit but have not seen a substantial cost increase. And that's for a number of different reasons. For example, when patients pay out of pocket, they may go down paths that might increase their risk. For example, someone may choose to transfer two embryos versus one, concerned for the cost down the road for multiple transfers, in which case you end up with a twin pregnancy, you end up with um, higher costs to closer monitoring, maternal fetal medicine, um, 
twin pregnancies often end up in the ICU. So you have NICU care and potentially long-term concerns. So by ensuring that all patients have fertility coverage and benefits, patients can follow best practices and best um, recommendations by their physicians. Dr. Yanetsos, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Christina Yanetsos is an emergency medicine physician in Aurora. She underwent fertility treatments to have her twins. A new Colorado law requires more health plans to cover treatments. The law takes effect January 1, 2023. When we come back, what the state's doing to try to improve behavioral health care at a time when anxiety can feel overwhelming. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Writing her new book about a sexual assault investigation in Colorado, Erica Krauss had to confront something bigger than her role as a PI. If you have been abused, or at least if you're in a situation like mine, you've been told that you don't have a right to tell your story and that your story actually belongs to another. Tell Me Everything is the next read for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Join the conversation live on stage to kick off Lit Fest in Denver, June 10th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. The mass shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo add to the traumatic load many people have been struggling with. The violence comes on top of the pandemic and years of political and social upheaval. Colorado's been working to improve its mental health system to deal with the state's ever-increasing needs. This year, lawmakers had a lot of money to devote to the issue, half a billion dollars in federal COVID relief funds. CPR's Benta Birkeland looked at how they spent it. Joshua Hersa had been struggling with depression and anxiety throughout his life, but it really came to a head when he was 25. He was on a walk with his three-year-old daughter at a park in Denver. And I slipped into a psychosis. I didn't even know that she was there. And I walked to the Brown Palace and I met H.H. Brown and he put his arm around me. I could feel his arm on my shoulder. Later, the Denver police showed me footage of me walking in the Brown Palace talking to nobody. Hersa was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which he describes as having three personalities inside of him. He's also bipolar. So I have multiple people in my head who are like either yelling or screaming or trying to control my body at any given time. This began Hersa's journey with the state's mental health system. He's been hospitalized three times and in jail twice. He relies on medication and therapy to keep himself stable. Before his crisis, Hersa worked at the state capitol as a Republican legislative aide and says he's been frustrated with how little attention lawmakers in the past paid to mental health issues. I've been here from 2010 to 2014. They didn't give a flying rip about schizophrenics. They didn't care that they were sitting in jail. Not a single one of them, I'll be honest. Otherwise, they would have ran a bill. Talk is cheap. But this year, Hersa says, was different. Colorado's new laws are meant to help people like him with the most serious cases. Democratic Representative Judy Amabile helped spearhead the effort. She was spurred to run for office after her own son was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. I'm feeling optimistic that we're going to make some change and that we're going to help some people and improve on our mental health care system. But also... All the bills and the money that we're spending this session, it's meaningful, but it is, it's not the final solution. 
Colorado will spend nearly a half billion dollars of federal COVID relief money on things like more inpatient treatment beds for people to get help. The vision for this is that it's a place where you could stay for a week, a month, three months, six months, and that how long you stay should depend on what you need as opposed to who's paying and how much they're willing to spend, which is kind of the system we have now. Behavioral health advocates say in many ways, Colorado has nowhere to go but up. According to recent figures from Mental Health America, Colorado ranks last in the nation in prevalence of adult mental illness versus access to care. The state does slightly better when it comes to youth. We're in a critical condition on the extreme side of things in so many ways. That's Vincent Achity, the president and CEO of the nonprofit Mental Health Colorado. He says health officials are bracing for even more pressures on a system they say is already failing to meet the needs of many Coloradans. We've got the prevalence of stress and anxiety across a population that's been living through this turbulent few years, you know, not just pandemic, but political divisiveness, persisting discrimination and racial injustice. Everywhere we look, it's kind of like a perfect storm for concern about mental health. The bills signed by Governor Jared Polis fall into four main categories. More treatment for people with mental illness in the criminal justice system, more help for youth and families, additional residential treatment beds for the most seriously ill, and efforts to make the entire system easier to navigate. Amabile says when she was getting help for her son, she saw how tough it was firsthand. We just didn't know who to call. We didn't know the lingo. We didn't know the difference between detox and rehab. We were handed lists. Here's 10 places that you could call and see if they can help you. And, you know, none of them worked. The goal for such a wide-ranging and systemic set of policies is to try to tackle this issue from many angles and make the system more effective, streamlined, and efficient. Democratic Representative Daphna Michelson-Janay has been focused on getting more resources to youth mental health in particular. We are climbing up on our youth treatment, but we are really, we're really rock bottom. You know, when you think about mental health available in other states, We don't have it here. Children's Hospital Colorado declared a youth mental health emergency last year. They cited the devastating figure that suicide is the leading cause of death for young people. And they're seeing their emergency rooms filled with children who've made suicide attempts. A $90 million influx of cash is meant to help fill in some of those gaps in treatment. We desperately call it the missing middle. We just don't have the care that our our kids need. And we need to do these things to be able to secure the mental health and well-being of our children, as well as our adults. For Vincent Achity with Mental Health Colorado, while he's pleased with the attention lawmakers are giving the issue, he worries about how long it will take for this new money to turn into new services. My concern, you know, as the consumer advocate is more about the urgency of now, the lives that are in jeopardy now. Sylvia Taz says the help can't come soon enough, and it may already be too late for her son with schizoaffective disorder. Last year, he was released from a hospital before she thought he was ready. 
She was trying to get him into residential treatment when he showed up at her house in Boulder County and attacked her. He's now facing three felony charges and up to 30 years in prison. I don't even know how to put a cost on that. He was completely, completely detached from reality. And I feared that would happen. And a mother's pleas were ignored. Taz says lists that rank Colorado as one of the healthiest states ignore its lack of mental health care. She thinks the problem is as big and as dangerous as Colorado's growing wildfires. Our state right now, outside of these bills, has been designing a blueprint for a fire engine when we have the equivalent of wildfires raging all around the state and the lack of mental health services. It's part of the reason my husband and I moved. We loved Colorado. We couldn't stay there. Lawmakers hope this bipartisan package of behavioral health measures will mean more people get mental health care help when they need it and keep other people from the pain Sylvia Taws and her family are experiencing. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. If you're in crisis or in need of mental health services, you can call the Colorado Crisis Services Hotline. That number is 1-844-493-8255, or you can text TALK to 38255. That will get you to a trained counselor or professional. When we come back, where does nuclear power fit into the discussion about climate change and clean energy? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado is famous for its natural beauty, including the iconic maroon bells. The towering mountain peaks overlook a sea of quivering aspens and a stunning lake. Look around, you see why people love it. That's why they come. The claim is they're loving it to death. How land managers are trying to protect Colorado's natural wonders while keeping them accessible to the public. Story and lots of pictures at CPR.org. Nuclear power has been debated since its beginnings in the 1950s. Fears of a nuclear accident have been realized at the Chernobyl plant in the former Soviet Union at the Fukushima plant in Japan, and in the United States at Three Mile Island. More recently, nuclear energy has had a renaissance of sorts as a clean energy alternative to fossil fuels. The latest season of the podcast Wild Thing is all about nuclear power. Laura Krantz, who lives in Denver, is the producer and host. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You start off the podcast in the year 1961, deep in the Idaho desert, and you tell the story of the meltdown at the SL-1 nuclear reactor at the Federal Research Facility there. That day, firefighters respond to an alert, and they show up. When they go inside, it's clear something's wrong. They get no response from the workers there. They saw three coats, three lunchboxes. They checked the log, three people working. But nobody was in the office area. And so they started going up the stairway, the access to the reactor itself, uh, an enclosed stairway on the outside of the silo. And that's when their meters started going up. That's Don Miley, who's a former tour director at the facility. So what exactly happened back there in 1961? 
So this federal research facility was known as the National Reactor Testing Station, and they were testing all kinds of reactors out there in the desert. And by they, I mean the government, the military, some industry. And in 1961, one of these experimental reactors blew up and it killed three men um, in the process. And it's still considered the deadliest nuclear accident in American history. And there were a lot of questions about what what went wrong, um, what the fallout, no pun intended, was from this, and if there were things that we needed to be concerned about going forward in terms of the safety of nuclear reactors. Now, many of us have heard about other nuclear meltdowns, but I had never heard about this one. Why is that? So I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one of the biggest ones is that in 1961, we were still fairly... Coming off of World War II, we still had a lot of trust in government. Um, There was still a sense of, like, you know, sacrifice that came with advances. Um, And when these men died, there was a little bit of a sense of, like, well, this is tragic, but it's for the greater good. If this had happened 20 years later, say, around the time that Three Mile Island happened in 1979, I think that the public's perception of this might have changed because there was a lot more information at that point about what the government had done in terms of testing. Um, There had been the bomb tests that were done out in the deserts of Nevada. There was the information that came about um, the mines in the Navajo Nation and what that had done to the miners. And I think trust in the government had eroded by that point. But in 1961, you still had a sense that, you know, the government was making advances. This was for the greater good. We could trust what they were trying to do. And I also think that in this particular part of the country, uh, the the economy was tied up in the success of the National Reactor Testing Station. And so people may not have wanted to hear that there were problems out there or that, that there were concerns because their economy was tied to this. Nuclear power is used in countries around the world as an energy source. It provides about 20 percent of energy in the U.S., which surprised me, and about 52 percent of its clean energy. How frequent are meltdowns? So they are actually not that frequent. I mean, the the most recent one in history in the United States was Three Mile Island, and that meltdown actually didn't result in a massive release of radiation. In fact, the systems that were in place worked. I think the biggest problem with Three Mile Island is is people felt that the government wasn't being transparent with them, wasn't keeping them informed. And I think part of that had to do with the government didn't actually know, and, and the government and the operator didn't actually have a really good sense of what was going on and so couldn't provide information in real time. That was the last big meltdown that I can that I know of in the United States. Um, there, of course, was Chernobyl in 1986 and Fukushima in 2011. And studies have come out that have said, you know, as more reactors are built, as we rely on this kind of energy more, the odds of a meltdown go up. And with that, you have to have even increased safety regulations. But that is not always going to get rid of this concern over meltdowns because it's just it's another industrial accident. And then you sort of if you think of it from that perspective of, you know, how often do we have problems with oil refineries? How often do coal mines collapse? Um, you, if you think of it in the terms of it being another type of industry, then I think the accidents seem 
like the the number of accidents seems normal. But the problem, of course, is that the repercussions of a nuclear accident are much bigger. Right. And long term. Let's talk about the debate um, more about nuclear power. I remember huge protests against it, about the dangers it posed. You interview Sarah Roby. She's a professor of history at Idaho State University. She's also the author of Atomic Americans, Citizens in a Nuclear State. She points out that the very idea of nuclear fission has a really dark past for a lot of Americans. The average person encountered the idea of nuclear fission first with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There was always this cloud kind of hanging over uh, their head that the root of this possible benefit is war and destruction and death. Now, that may have been an association in past generations, but do current generations connect nuclear energy and the atomic bomb that way? I don't know that they do. And I think that is part of the reason that nuclear is having something of a renaissance, because younger generations see this as a source of clean power, and they don't necessarily carry the baggage of either World War II or of even the Cold War necessarily. Although I will say that the recent actions by Russia in Ukraine, in terms of taking over the Chernobyl's abandoned nuclear power plant, and then also you know, uh, lobbing missiles at the other Ukrainian nuclear power plant, the active one, and I can't remember the name of it right now, that sort of raises this question of, you know, can we be responsible with this stuff? And I I do think that it raised a few eyebrows and sort of brought back some of those old fears when that started to happen. But in general, no, I don't think younger generations have that same association that perhaps older ones do. And I think much of this renaissance has to do with concerns about climate change and fossil fuel. Here's John Radford in your podcast. He's one of the people you interviewed, and he's a member of the Idaho Falls City Council. The planet doesn't have time for us to wait another 20 years. We really have to solve this problem in the next 10 years if we're going to have an impact And nuclear is the pathway forward. And I'll be honest, I think it's the bridge to get us to a carbon-free future. Now, Idaho Falls is actually your old hometown, and it's on track to begin using energy from a nuclear reactor in 2030. How has climate change affected uh, that debate over nuclear power? Well, I think... You know, both of these are big sort of long-term questions. Nuclear has this long-term question of, you know, what's going to happen with waste? What about generations down the road? What happens if there's an accident? You know, what kind of damage does it do to the environment? And climate change, similarly, seems actually in some ways further out. Like, what kind of damage are we going to see from climate change? What are the economic and environmental repercussions? But more recently, we are seeing the results of climate change all the time. And so the concerns that climate change raises sort of have started to outweigh perhaps the concerns that nuclear energy once had. And if you if you put them on a scale, I would say that that people are starting to be more worried about climate change. And we are not at a place where solar and wind are going to be able to take all of meet all of our energy needs. Um, we may get there someday, and that would be great, but we're just not there yet. So the hope is that nuclear will be able to fill in that gap. 
how act as a bridge from fossil fuels to to this stuff. And how clean is nuclear energy compared to other sources like wind and solar? Well, that's kind of a hard question to answer because nuclear is certainly cleaner than coal and oil and gas. But with nuclear, you also have the waste issue. And that is long term. And that is something that we have not answered the question of what we're going to do with it, where we're going to put it, how we're going to make sure it sort of stays out of our environment and our bodies. And that is always going to be something of a of a problem with nuclear that solar and wind don't have. But solar, you know, you have to mine for lithium. There's rare earth metals. Wind has its own problems. And in terms of real estate, uh, nuclear actually takes up less land than solar does. So there are a lot of different questions to weigh, but I would not say that nuclear is necessarily cleaner than solar or wind. What about the cost? How does nuclear power compare to, say, natural gas and solar and wind? Oh, yeah. Nuclear is expensive. And you don't have to look any farther than South Carolina or Georgia to see how expensive it can be, because getting those plants up and running, getting them built, getting them through the regulatory process, getting them up and running, they usually come in well over budget and well past deadline, um, which always adds to the cost of those things. Once you have a nuclear plant up and running, it can go for a very long time um, and I think even has longer timelines than coal or natural gas do in terms of how, how long those plants last. They also don't need as much fuel. You get much more energy out of, you know, uranium fuel than you do out of coal and gas, which you constantly have to be feeding into the power plant, whereas the nuclear power plant can sustain itself off uranium for a certain amount of time. Um, but the costs are prohibitive, and they are the reason in Idaho Falls that there are some questions about whether nuclear is the way forward, because even now, as they're considering the new small modular reactors to power the town, there's, these things are starting to go over cost and they're starting to go past deadlines. And so there are, there are real questions there about whether this is economically feasible. You interview people who argue that despite climate change, nuclear energy is not the answer to the problem. Tammy Thatcher lives in Idaho Falls. Climate change is very frightening. It's very real. But if you have enough nuclear to make a difference to climate change, you'll be ruining not just one generation of lives. You're wiping, you're wiping out humanity. So she's talking about both the possibility of a meltdown and the nuclear waste that's produced by a power plant. How often did you hear this fear expressed by people you interviewed? a little bit. I didn't actually hear it as much as I expected. And I will say that Tammy's position on this is probably more to the extreme end of things. Um, and I, I, in talking to a lot of different people, I came to the conclusion that she is perhaps, um, I understand where her concerns come from, but I don't know that she's necessarily accurate about these things. Um, that being said, she makes a good point, which is, we have not answered the questions yet about what we're going to do with the waste. And if you think about ramping nuclear up to be the solution to our energy questions involving climate change, that is going to produce more waste and that is going to up the chances of a meltdown and that is going to be expensive. And the timelines on that are also quite long. So I can see what her perspective is. 
Um, that doesn't mean I that we should give up on nuclear, but I think there are questions that we have not answered yet that we really do need to answer before we full, fully embrace this technology. In the last 30 seconds that we have, after all of your work, did you come to any conclusion about nuclear energy and how much the U.S. should depend on it? So I think that nuclear energy does have a way forward. I think it needs to be done in communities that are interested in pursuing this technology and are willing to take some of the risks that are associated with it. I do think we need to answer the questions about waste. I do think we need to have a lot of transparency around it so that people feel like they are getting information and can feel comfortable with it. Um, But I do think that it has potential to be a good bridge technology as we head uh, into sort of the next few decades and are trying to figure out how to deal with the energy problems associated with climate change. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Laura Krantz is producer and host of the podcast Wild Thing Going Nuclear. You can find a link to the podcast at CPR.org. When we come back, remembering longtime journalist and TV pioneer Dusty Saunders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. July 1887, Summit County. Two prospectors blast their way into a pocket of gold and pull out a massive nugget, 13 and a half pounds. To keep their bonanza safe, Tom Groves swaddles the rock in a blanket and holds it tenderly all the way back into town. Folks there called the chunk Tom's baby, and it was boxed up, shipped to Denver, and disappeared. Generations later, a search leads to a bank vault in Denver with a dusty wooden crate labeled dinosaur bones. But inside, a shimmering mass of gold, Tom's baby. What happened to those missing three and a half pounds of gold in the 80 years between sightings is a mystery. But Tom's baby is still the largest piece of gold discovered in Colorado. Look for it in the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And in Breckenridge, look for a statue of Tom Groves in Prospector Park. And give the 13 and a half pound baby he's cradling a rub for good luck. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Sheets and Giggles. If it commanded an audience in Colorado, Dusty Saunders probably wrote about it. The longtime entertainment and sports columnist died Sunday at age 90. He was with the now-defunct Rocky Mountain News for decades. He then freelanced at the Denver Post. Saunders was a founding member of the Television Critics Association, and in 2012, he spoke with Ryan Warner about his autobiography, Here's Dusty, Life in the TV and Newspaper World. Dusty Saunders remembers the day when the first Denver television station went on the air. It was the summer of 1952. I, along with my, some of my college buddies, we went down to a TV store on South Broadway. I think it was Vallis TV. And the, um, they were running test patterns. And I crowded into the store, and they had several little black and white sets around. I went back the next day, and uh, they were doing some NBC programming, a show called A Big Payoff, which was a uh, quiz show. And the third day was a live coverage from Chicago of the Democratic National Convention when Adlai Stevenson was nominated for the presidency. Saunders was studying journalism in college, and newspapers and radio were his love. But this new medium would come to play a critical role in his life. You point out in the book that television actually came late to Denver. Correct. Why? Uh, Because there was a freeze by the FCC 
on giving permits. And also the Korean War started in 1950, and a lot of that regulatory stuff dealing with electronics just stopped because of the war effort and everything. And these were the initial licenses to be able to broadcast on on TV. Oh, yeah. Now, you keep in mind that the rest of the nation had TV Midwest, East, even the West Coast, like 1947-48. But Denver was one of the last major cities in the country to get television. Well, I, I mentioned that you covered the media beat for 40 years at the Rocky. Well, I was, yeah, I, co- I was at the Rocky for 54 years. Yeah. And started uh, as a copy boy, copy boy, covered cops. City Hall. City Hall. Uh, I was assistant feature editor and I was a feature editor. And during those latter jobs, I got into television. I had to kind of push my way in because of the fact that uh, Scripps Howard in those days thought of television as the enemy, as a rival, which it was both in uh, news coverage and in advertising. Scripps Howard, the owner of the Rocky Mountain yes, News. Right. And right, they didn't really want to dedicate a lot of space to television. That's right. I had to fight for space and I finally won my battle. How do you move from covering cops in City Hall to entertainment? Well, I think a lot of this is probably my psyche. I grew up as an orphan in Denver, and I had a developed an ability to meet people and to make friends. And I think that kind of led me into the media world, the entertainment world, where it was a little more convivial. You eventually convince the Rocky Mountain News to start a section called TV dial. TV dial, right. And this is familiar now to many of us, the idea of a kind of television insert in the newspaper. But this is a pretty revolutionary idea. It was at the time. uh, TV Guide was uh, very, very big in those days. And I just determined that this might be a good way for the Rocky to add on some subscribers. We were uh, way behind the Denver Post in circulation in those days. And so I presented the idea for TV Dial. And What uh, year is this, Dusty? 1962. 62. Yeah. And uh, the editors bought it. And uh, the first year, as a matter of fact, we, tacked, we the Rocky, tacked on 20,000 Sunday circulation, which was one of, the, one of the aims of the project. Who was on the first cover? Uh, Dorothy Provine. ABC had a mediocre series called The Roaring Twenties, which was kind of a takeoff on the Elliot Ness situation with the gangsters. How'd you do? I'm taking you to the Roaring Twenties for a true bird's eye view of the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. So I uh, interviewed her on the telephone. The interview wasn't that good, but uh, what the heck, it was a, a start for the TV dial. In the early 1960s, ABC TV, which is trailing in the ratings at that point, comes up with a novel approach to drum up publicity. Right. What what do they do? They decided, because they were really number three behind NBC and CBS, they were called at one point the almost broadcasting company. That was was kind of a low blow. But they determined they would get uh, television writers or critics from 20 or 25 of the major cities around the country and invite them at their expense to come out and spend four or five days in Los Angeles interviewing the stars, uh, looking at a little bit of film about the series, and uh, that's how they got their start. And in retrospect, that was probably not the way to go because we were at the network trough. You do write in the book with some discomfort around this chapter. Initially, the other networks follow suit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it went that way into the uh, 70s. And as television coverage grew and more and more newspapers were covering television, the editors, 
and the TV industry to some degree, and the writers decided, hey, we can't do this anymore. We have become a, have to become a formal organization and start paying our own way. You were a founding member and a past president of the Television Critics Association. That's correct. And it, that group developed all kinds of rules yeah, about... Yeah, we, we became very professional, and it, the organization still exists today. We have an annual TV Critics Award, which has uh, become a you know, very prestigious honor. You covered Denver nightlife as well. Yes, I had my uh, my first experience with nightlife was in the '60s when I was kind of an assistant feature editor, and the editor at that time was a gentleman named Jack Foster. Well, I said, Jack, I married, have three small kids. I don't think I can hit the nightlife scene. <laughs> <laughs> so he, Jack, in his own inventive way, created a non de plume for me called Blade Biber. And Blade was a gay blade, somebody who was out and about. Biber was an imbiber, right? For about two years, every Friday, there'd be a column in the newspaper by Blade Biber. Now, this would not be reviews of the shows or the critic, but it would be occasional interview of somebody. But I never, very seldom did I go out to these clubs because I had other duties. But I would get calls from uh, nightclub owners and entertainers, hey, Blade, uh, hey, Mr. Biber, when are you coming out to uh, visit us? That type of thing. Well, you write about a club called the Moulin Rouge. Um, and it was a club at the old Fairmont Hotel yeah, downtown. Yeah, big, big, big entertainment room, huge entertainment room. Tony Bennett played there, Lena Horne. I love the story, uh, you write about this in the book, of Mel Torme's yes. first show there in 1980. Right. What happened? What happened? Well, you have to remember the Fairmont Hotel was... Its popularity stemmed from two major hotels, one in San Francisco and the other in Dallas. They were legendary hotels. They'd always bring in top-notch entertainment, including some of the people that you mentioned, and they would always open on a Monday night. And Denver, I don't, I don't think even today is necessarily a Monday night town for entertainment. Perhaps that that's changed, but in the in the uh, '80s, this was not Monday night entertainment in Denver. Mel Torme came to town and. Uh, they had two shows for him in the Moulin Rouge, one at 7 o'clock and one at 9, dinner show at 7. And I went over to review the show and got there. And uh, this room probably could hold at least 40 couples, about 80 people comfortably. And there were five couples there. And Torme, who somewhat had a reputation for being a little bit belligerent at times, I thought, boy, he is really going to react badly to this. Well, he found out what the reason was. And the major reason was the Denver Broncos were playing a Monday night football game at the old (laughs) Mile High Stadium. And you can almost hear the sound reverberating outside the hotel. So he came out and instead of making funny excuses or saying anything, he went to individual tables and asked the the patrons what they would like to hear. He came to me. I'm a big George Gershwin fan. I said, yeah, if you would do some Gershwin for me, that would be marvelous. So he got up there and said, "Uh, here's someone to watch over me. And he did a marvelous show. Well, this was a Monday night, and the plan was for me to uh, do a review in maybe Wednesday's paper for the weekend. But what I did, I called the city desk, told them what had happened, and they liked the idea. So I did a front-page story about Mel Torme and the Broncos and everything, which got a lot of readership. <laughs> local TV was also on your beat, uh, and and local TV news. And in 1990, you broke a story about a fabricated report on Channel 4. That's correct. 
Um, it aired during sweeps. This is the ratings period for television. What was the story about? Okay, this was in the May sweeps, and at that time, May sweeps were considered the most important sweeps period in local broadcasting. Uh, this sto- determines what you can charge for advertising. Exactly, you know? exactly. And the networks, because they're getting ready for the hiatus of the summer rerun season, they always put on you know major dramas, miniseries, all of this, and the local stations would try to follow up with special news articles. This concerned a series of news reports regarding a pit bull fighting. Well, they aired, Channel 4 aired this uh, report on a Thursday night, as I recall, and I got a a call from someone inside uh, Channel 4. His name today is still in my mind, but I haven't released it, saying that these were staged, that these were not a reporter and a photographer going to an actual pit bull fight, but they were set up ahead of time, and the fights were staged. It finally unraveled. The uh, story had legs. Finally, I worked on it for a while. City Desk took it over for a while and ended up with a court trial in uh, Golden in 1991. At which you testified. Which I testified. Yeah, kind of a law and order character, I guess. <laughs> and uh, the, the participants, were they didn't serve any jail time. They pleaded various aspects of guilty and not guilty and everything. But it was a uh, major, major story, and I got a couple of national awards for it. Finally, you write that people often ask you what your favorite television shows are. Right. Um, Is there something that you don't miss? Showtime, one of the paid cable services, has a, uh, a show called Homeland. It is about a Marine who was imprisoned in an Iraq for 10 years, and he, keeps, he he gets out, and he comes home as a hero. And his adversary is a, a CIA agent, uh, played by Claire Danes, an excellent actress, who is bipolar. And she thinks she has proof that uh, this hero is not who he pretends to be, that is really a turncoat and is here as a terrorist. It's one of the best television series I've ever seen. Dusty, thanks so much for talking with Thank us. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Dear, I thought I'd drop a line The weather's cool The folks are fine My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with longtime columnist and TV critic Dusty Saunders in 2012. Saunders died Sunday at age 90. P.S. I love you Yesterday we had some rain But all in all I can't complain Was it dusty on the train Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
Let me see. Yeah, I guess that's all.